0: Hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop. How about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking queer money on the road this summer and fall. Visit queermoneypodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Come on, money isn't different for LGBTQ people. You're inventing something that doesn't exist just to make money off of it, i.e. you're fronting. This was a recent tweet that we received from a troll on Twitter. But when we asked them if they could back up their information with data, they ghosted us. Things that make you go, hmm. Well, you're listening to Queer Money episode number 297,
1: and we have data. Data to support the fact that money is different for LGBTQ people than the general population. Just like money is different for BIPOC folks, women, and other less straight, less white folks. So get ready, because today we're giving you seven ways to educate that stale, pale male how being LGBTQ makes money different for you. Remember, we make the Queer Money Podcast for you, so please post your money questions in the Queer Money Facebook group. We may answer your question in an upcoming episode. Now, on the show.
0: There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money.
1: Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Gainbridge sponsors the best, including the Indiana Pacers, Indiana Fever, Indiana 500, and the Queer Money Podcast. That's because Gainbridge believes dedication is an essential component of success in every community. Visit Gainbridge.life today.
0: So as we mentioned in the outset, we got trolled, which isn't Yay. the first time and is actually a indication that you're actually getting under the skin of some people and having some impact to benefit uh, benefiting others, right? Let's make that people itch- don't like it when you're doing something <laughs> that helps other people, especially trolls, right? But this particular incident happened because I was out there on Twitter talking about, how money is different and sharing things about how money is different for LGBT folks, specifically sharing a a Queer Money Podcast episode on the Queer Money Podcast feed on Twitter. And there was this exchange that happened. Someone reached out and basically trolled us by saying that money isn't different for LGBT folks and that we were just fronting and creating stuff out of thin air so that we could have a conversation that wasn't really valid and that we were creating a business around that. Well, the reality is, is we are creating a business around it, but this person didn't have any data to back up what they were saying. And even when I said, we have data to back it up, they said they didn't have data. And I said, well, we have data. And they, the response they came back with was, I'm just going to keep trolling you. And I was just basically responded. Unfortunately, that's what you are, is a troll doing something that doesn't add any value to people's lives, like what we're doing by trying to add value to queer folks' lives by helping people understand that there is a difference when it comes to our finances as queer people. And we need to be cognizant of that when we're making our financial decisions. So to be fair, Eighty
1: percent of money is the same for everyone across the board. It's very transactional. A dollar is a dollar. ATMs work for straight people as they do for gay people. Um, all of that is is very similar. All that is the same. But David and I believe that there's about twenty percent of finance that makes a monumental difference on the whole overall one hundred percent. And sort sort of a corollary to this is the Pareto principle, and that's the sort of the 80-20 rule. And so 80% of money is the same for everybody, but 20% is different. And that's based on your race, your color, your gender, your sexual orientation, your background, your... Familial history, where you live, um, all sorts of factors. And it's that 20% has a disproportionate effect on the overall 100%. And that's what David and I are targeting when we're doing the Queer Money podcast or when we go around the country and we speak to LGBTQ folks, trying to get them to start talking about money and providing them steps to start being better with their money. It's that 20% that we're trying to help people with. And because it has such a monumental effect right. on the overall 100%. And,
0: it, and it's not just. Our experience that we've seen this, although we do have our own experiences, we see this anecdotally by individuals that we talk to. We see this in the data that's being published. We see this in the stories that are being shared, not only on social media, but in media in general that really point to these differences. So what we wanted to do on this specific podcast, and I'm kind of surprised that we actually haven't. Here we are, episode 297, and we've never really, we've published articles, not only on our own website, but other Websites, uh, Forbes, and a variety of other financial publications we've covered this topic, but we've never covered it as a standalone topic here on yeah. the podcast. so we thought it was important to answer this question one so that you, as our listeners and watchers, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, have kind of some some basic ammunition when you are talking with someone about money and you share that it money is different for LGBT folks. So we wanted to share with you some cover some points as to what we think, or actually data that shows why it is different.
1: I think it's great to have the ammunition, but I think it's also helpful for those of us who are members of the community to understand what makes money different for us so we can respond differently. So the advice that a straight, white, middle-class American couple in the middle of the country takes from a financial advisor or from a podcast that they listen to might actually not work for us as LGBTQ people. If we're single, living on the the parentheses of the country, or especially actually in in the rural parts of the country, things are just different. So we we need to be cognizant of that and then respond accordingly.
0: Right. So I want you to kick us off with legacy. Right. So our first point here is legacy beliefs. Number one, what we believe about ourselves, our history has a huge impact on how we interact with money. So when you think about LGBT folks over time, now I know things are a little different today than what they were 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, but for folks who have grown up as LGBT, we hear messages over and over again whether that's messages from our churches our classrooms our politicians in the media we hear all these messages and these messages have a very significant impact on who we are as individuals, so how we think about ourselves, maybe how we think about the potential that we have in the world, or how other people interact with us as LGBT folks. We covered this whole idea of legacy financial exclusion in depth on episode 268 of the podcast. Legacy financial exclusion is basically, and to sum it up briefly, is that when the money is being handed out or when things that are associated with money are being handed out. They're handed out differently to individuals who are LGBTQ. We'd encourage you to go back and listen to that episode specifically. But really what this does is this causes us to have a psychological impact on our relationship with money. Mm -hmm. And you've heard many of us on this podcast talk about how John and I had a relationship with money that wasn't healthy. And we trace some of that back to how we were treated and how we were raised and how we believe what we believed about ourselves because we were queer.
1: Exactly. And I think a lot of LGBTQ folks are, are there. One of the big messages we got from the 2019 Queer Money Live tour was that even though, you know, in 2019, things were a bit different for LGBTQ people than they were 30 some years ago. People were still holding on to these legacy beliefs. And even younger folks were still adopting and holding on to these beliefs. And it's important to remember it's, it's like in the four agreements, right? Even before we're, we're born, people are projecting onto us what they think the ideal life for us looks like. And they might not be overt messages, they could be micro messages. And many of us have received these micro messages that, well, by and large, LGBTQ people aren't good people they're evil they're you know they're an abomination and so if you hear this to any degree especially if you hear it over and over and over again by the time you get to adulthood that's going to affect all sorts of decisions you make in your life and money is no different it's going to affect the way you spend money and as david alluded that was part of the reason why david and i spent so much money buying things to try to impress other people mm-hmm. trying to fit in because we spent whole childhoods um, not fitting in or not feeling like we belonged and i think you know for many lgbtq people there are a lot of us who are sort of on those lower rungs of maslow's hierarchy of needs and we need to address those things first before we can move up that ladder and start to live those bigger, fuller, more 360
0: degree lives. Right. I think especially we've heard data around trans women of color and their earning potential, right? Anywhere from roughly about ten dollars to $20,000 is what the average trans woman of color earns in the United States. Clearly, these are individuals who are at the very bottom of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs because they're probably struggling more often than not with things like hunger, lack of shelter, those kinds of things that oftentimes distracts someone from being able to think about some of the more higher level financial aspects of their lives.
1: And that's a great segue into point number two, which is there's a wage gap for being LGBTQ. We don't get paid as much as the straight white male who's doing the same job as good as we're doing it. In 2018, Prudential released their financial wellness census, and it showed that one in seven non-LGBT men and one in 10 non-LGBT women pursue and have jobs in high-paying careers such as tech, sciences, and professional careers compared to one in 12 LGBT women. And get this, compared to one in 25 LGBT men. Now, David and I have heard several times from several different resources. Unfortunately, we can't pinpoint the actual source of this data, but it's come up to us a number of times that over 60% of LGBT people are in some sort of service or retail industry. So while there's nothing wrong with that, those types of jobs don't provide the types of benefits and certainly the income that the STEM careers, for example, can provide. And so a few of us are Pursuing those careers, that makes everything a little bit more challenging, not impossible, but a little bit more challenging. And that makes something, money in some way, shape, or form different. And we need to respond differently than to our financial situation.
0: Right. You know, what's interesting is I know that there is some data that has been pointed out over the last couple of years that gay couples and lesbian couples as couples have a higher earning potential or actually make more money than straight couples. What's interesting about that, though, is the percentage of gay and lesbian couples that have children and thus have one person at home versus non-LGBT folks. Also the cities and locations of where individuals work. There's a lot of factors. And we actually talked about that in an episode, and I'm forgetting the episode number, where we talked about some reasons why gay men might be earning more. But there's a lot of other data around not necessarily just around our earning, what we earn, but also just the data about who we are and where we live. So for example, 13.1% of LGBT adults live in a household where they're at sometimes there isn't enough to eat or they say that they haven't had enough to eat over the last seven days compared to 7.2% of non-LGBT adults, which really shows, and I think this speaks a lot to the numbers that talk about poverty in the LGBT community and how it is significantly higher than the general population. That same US Census Bureau
1: study also showed that 36.6% of LGBT adults lived in households that had difficulty paying for usual household expenses in the previous seven days, compared to just 26.1% of non LGBTQ adults. And, you know, both that data that you just shared and the data that I just shared, what does that mean for most people? Well, it means that they're struggling to make ends meet, means that they're struggling to put food on the table, to keep the electricity on, to keep the water running. And what happens in most cases, is those people then gravitate to using debt credit cards to pay for those bills. Well, that might be a great remedy in the immediate timeframe. In the long term, that actually can compound and make things worse, right? Because unless they're able to pay off those credit card balances month after month, those credit card balances are growing and snowballing and getting larger. And- they're probably paying a high credit card interest rate on those balances. So, that actually, while temporarily it could be a solution, um, long term it could be uh, exacerbating the problems that they're facing.
0: Right. We also know that LGBT folks oftentimes face unemployment even more. And that was the case, again, from the Census Bureau, that 19.8% of LGBT adults lived in a household where someone lost employment income in the past four weeks. And compared that to 16.8% of non-LGBT folks. But we know that this data was really prevalent and exacerbated because of the pandemic. And there's even more data specifically from HRC, the human rights campaign, around Around how the pandemic really impacted LGBT folks. For example, 58% of trans people of color reported that their work hours had been reduced during the pandemic. Compared that to 23% of the general population and 27% of white LGBT folks. So significantly high number of trans people of color were put out of work. Again, this probably speaks to the fact that many of them were working in service sector jobs where I don't like to necessarily say this in align with trans folks, but in in that particular job, they were looked at as expendable, right? We don't, we can let these people go because either our business doesn't need them or we just need to close down our doors for right now. And well, too bad, so sad, you're going to lose your job.
1: It's sort of in in line with the earning potential, the Center for LGBTQ Economic Advancement and Research found that one in five LGBTQ workers earned less than twenty-five thousand dollars a year in 2019, which is one point five times the rate of non-LGBTQ plus households. So there's a lot of data to support that we're simply not getting paid the same. And and there could be a couple of reasons for that. We might not be pursuing the jobs that don't. Pay those higher paying salaries, or we also might be being pushed away from being able to get those jobs. It could be affecting us at both ends. But one has to ask, if we're not pursuing those jobs, why aren't we pursuing those jobs? What's going on exactly? Is it because we are carrying limiting beliefs from our childhood into adulthood and we think that we can't pursue those higher paying jobs? Or are we afraid that if we pursue those higher paying jobs and try to move up the corporate ladder, are we then sort of exposing more about ourselves than we want to? It's just a lot easier to stay here and do my job here day to day and be able to punch in and punch out according to my schedule and we don't want to overexpose ourselves or, or are there other factors playing into that but the fact of the matter is as a community we're simply not getting paid as much as general population or straight white folks in particular
0: yeah and we know that one of the causes for this one of the root causes for folks in the community to be earning less and maybe gravitating towards service sector jobs is because there is a higher potential for individuals in the LGBT community to leave home and be out on the streets when they they shouldn't be, right? They've left a home because it's it's an unsafe place to be. That's why the Williams Institute really kind of pushes this data over and over again, that 40% of homeless youth identify as LGBT folks, which means that at an earliest point in life, oftentimes they're getting started off with a very low-income job, struggling financially, don't have the financial education. This is one of those things that we talk about with the legacy financial exclusion. There are so many young LGBTQ folks that that although there is a broader acceptance today, but there are still a lot of them who are having to go out on the streets because they can no longer be at home. And this really sets us up for, sets the community, a lot of folks in the community up for being at the lower end of the financial spectrum.
1: Yeah, and I think not only does it make it harder for the homeless LGBTQ youth to sort of make ends meet, figure out how, where they're going to sleep at night, and figure out how they're going to how they're going to find food, but they're also missing out on watching older people, their parents, transact money in a responsible way. Doesn't guarantee that if they stayed with mom and dad, that they would definitely learn how to manage. Not all parents way. are responsible with their money, <laughs> but it, it pretty much it pretty much makes it impossible for them to sort of get those examples that those uh, non overt that non overt education throughout their lives while they're watching their parents pay bills or transact at the grocery store or um how they're investing or not investing their money. They're completely missing out on that opportunity. So that just makes you know when they do get their first job while that's a great opportunity are they are they able to Take advantage of that opportunity to that's most because they don't necessarily have that financial education.
0: Right. And you know, student loan hero echoed this information in a recent study where they said that LGBT youth are 120% more likely than their peers to be homeless. And this mm-hmm. really does speak to the growing population of LGBT folks who are homeless. But even when it comes to individuals who are not necessarily homeless, individuals who are able to go on and go to school, there are some things that set us back as well and this also could be a part of the reason why some folks are taking on more student loan debt so recent graduate recent lgbt graduates had $112,000 in student loan debt compared to $96,000 versus the general population. Now, again, this could there could be a number of factors there, right? One, you're leaving a home where your parents are not participating or helping you out at all in school. One, you're fleeing to a city that you feel safer in. And so because of that, you're going to a more expensive city to live in or, or go to school in. There's a lot of different factors as to why that could be happening, but the, reality is, is that kind of student loan debt really sets a lot of queer folks up for a struggle, a financial struggle when you take on that much student loan debt.
1: Well, I think it's also important, student loan hero, and we talked about this with Miranda Marquit of student loan hero on the Queer Money Podcast years ago when the study came out, but they also found that 60% of LGBTQ students who had student loan debt also had other types of debt. And 79% of those who also had other types of debt had credit card debt, which is the highest interest rate debt there is available. And I think, you know, to your point, it's now not only um, is it harder for us to grow up when we finally go to college and we get this degree, so hopefully, hopefully we've set ourselves on a trajectory for a successful future, then we get into the workforce with more debt than the general population. So that makes things harder. But then get this. 32% 32 percent of the respondents to that study also said their gender identity or sexual orientation was a factor in them being denied services. So here they are with all this debt. then when they get into adulthood, you know, we've just been struggling all these, all our lives. We, and I think a lot of us think when I finally become an adult, right when I become, when I graduate college and I get out there working for myself and I'm doing my own thing, then things will get easier. Well then it doesn't, right? Because now we have so many of us who are experiencing discrimination even in, into adulthood. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. Heard a rumor about annuities? Cut out the noise by visiting Queer Money podcast sponsor Gainbridge at gainbridge.life to learn more.
0: So a lot of these factors that are, are are around how much we earn or how we figure out how we're going to earn or the lack of ability to earn, those are, are things that we carry with us from youth, right? And once we get to a certain point, we try to break out on our own. And there is one big factor that is inhibiting a lot of Queer folks from being able to make financial progress. And that's where we choose to live. The reality is, is that for decades, maybe even longer than that, but for at least for decades, we know that queer folks gravitate towards large, expensive cities. Why? Because more often than not, those are the places where we, what we like to call cities of refuge. This is point number three. We flee to these cities of refuge. We flee to these locations, where we feel like there's a community. If you're a trans person, you're more likely to go to a city like San Francisco or New York because you know that those are places where there are services for you, right? The services that you need as a queer trans person, you will be going to those cities. Now, what we, we already know that New York and San Francisco are the most expensive cities to live in the U.S., mm-hmm. but these are individuals who are earning well below the average individual. So this sets us up, sets queer folks up, For additional financial challenges because we end up gravitating towards these more expensive cities. So it's interesting that there when you think about the alignment of the costs of cities and the cities that folks, queer folks, gravitate towards, right? The most, the largest populations for LGBT people in the United States are New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, San Francisco, and Phoenix. Now, Tell me if any of those places are low-cost living (laughs) cities. No. (laughs) They're
1: all expensive.
0: What's also interesting is that what completely aligns with the largest population of folks who listen to the Queer Money Podcast. (laughs) The Queer Money Podcast listeners (laughs) come from New York, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, the San Francisco Bay Area, and Atlanta. those are our top five cities. so shout out to <laughs> shout out to the folks there, but we know that you're living in very, very expensive cities. <laughs> there's a
1: corollary there. um and you know I think you sort of to support you know this third point here one of our most popular articles on debtfreeguys.com is titled 25 affordable gay cities you're forgetting um, and year after year after year that just gets the most uh, and in fact we did we covered 10 of those cities on a Queer money podcast uh, a little while back i don't know maybe a year or so ago but i think we think that the reason people gravitate to those to that article is cuz many of us do want to sort of escape to LA or San Francisco or to New York city, but then we also (laughs) were like, but I know that's expensive. expensive, So is there, (laughs) is there a backup plan? And so they go to that article to find, hopefully find a backup plan. Actually, if you're looking for a place to move as an LGBTQ person, check out that article, but most importantly, check out the comments in that article. And it's got a lot of of great comments and conversations going on there that might actually direct you into a city that you might want to go to. That's not as expensive. (laughs) And maybe you can earn as much or hopefully more than what you're learning earning in one of those bigger cities.
0: And I I will say that, that the mobility of folks today, the migration that's happening because of the great resignation, I think that a lot of folks are moving out into, I don't want to say small towns and small cities, but they're moving to smaller, more affordable locations. We're starting to see places like Boise, Idaho, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Omaha, Nebraska, As a matter of fact, I read this today, Toledo, Ohio, (laughs) these kinds of cities that have a population of anywhere from 250 to 500,000 and are also close to within a, a couple of hour drive to a major city, these cities are starting to become more and more popular and they're pulling more and more LGBT folks to them. So if you're thinking about where to go that's not so expensive, remember some of these smaller cities, some of these bedroom communities that are a couple of hours away, are starting to gain popularity in the LGBT community. And you're starting to see LGBT centers and services in a lot of these cities popping up.
1: So do your homework. And yep. maybe, maybe we have to update that article. We do. I,
0: <laughs> I, I know that there are a couple of cities that need to be removed from that because they're not as cost-effective because of this migration. Exactly. exactly. So point number four
1: is, when was the last time you saw a financial <laughs> services, commercial, bank, credit union, whatever, that had someone in it that looked like you? <sighs> I don't know the last time I saw that. You yeah. rarely see we rarely see LGBTQ people in financial services, banking, credit union advertising. It's simply not for the most part not there. Yeah. There have been a couple of instances and we need to give total props to those companies that that have done it such as Prudential, Wells Fargo, Mass Mutual, TD Bank, Capital One, Capital One being a sponsor of this podcast. You can open a an account with Capital One easily and quickly on your phone. They have one of the best rates available and they support the LGBTQ community all year round.
0: Right. The- I remember so they, they do education in their cafes, in the Capital One cafes. And I remember seeing I go to their site from time to time to check out what kind of education or classes that they that they're having. And I remember seeing a prompt for discussion around budgeting as a family. And it was two guys and a kid. And clearly the message there was that this is okay for queer folks, different looking families, non-traditional families, right? To show up to these kinds of events. And it's just those those little things, right? I mean, I remember back to, you may have heard us tell this story before, but John and I used to work for one of the biggest brokerage firms out there. We've mentioned them a number of times on this podcast, but we begged for several years in a row for them to please create material for financial advisors that work and live in places like Chicago, New York, LA, that are constantly interfacing with queer families or queer people. Please let us have some material that looks like people like us. No. No. That was the answer begging for year after year after year. And this company still gets a 100. I don't understand why HRC still gives them a hundred, but they get a hundred on the HRC index. Some money is going in somebody's pocket, I think.
1: So, so, But the question you might be asking yourself is why why is this relevant? Well, it's relevant because if we don't see ourselves in this type of advertising, if the only type of collateral or marketing that we see for financial services, helping people achieve successful retirements or financial security is a straight white couple walking down the beach with their golden retriever, what many of us don't feel like we can identify with that. So then subconsciously, we might think that that's not available to us. Or even if we think it is available to us, we might not think that, well, that particular institution or the people that work at that institution might not know how to work with us. They might not, or they might not even want to work with us, which is a great segue into point number (laughs) five.
0: (laughs) The reality is, is that financial institutions traditionally have not been welcoming, right? I I think that when you look out there at personal finance, out on social media today, the vast majority of it is so bro, so white, so straight, so toxic, right? The way in which individuals deliver the information that it scares a lot of people away. I think that's why you're seeing a proliferation, or say that word correctly, a proliferation of other folks coming into the personal finance space, right? No more Mr. Ramsey, right? We're tired of the bald white guy telling everybody about and, and quoting scriptures and telling everybody that this is the way you need to live your life, right? There are more women, there are more people of color, there are more queer people coming into the personal finance space. But we space. do like bald white guys. No, we like this bald white guy. <laughs> For those of you who who are not uh, watching this, I was just rubbing the top <laughs> of John's head. <laughs> so the supporting data around this is
1: that Mass Mutual did a study a couple of years ago that showed that a majority of respondents said that they avoided banks and brokerage firms because they assumed that the person across the table either didn't know how to work with them or didn't want to work with people like them.
0: Right. And, you know, p- speaking from personal experience, having worked in financial services and having been connected to the offices where individuals could come in and speak to someone face-to-face, I realized that the vast majority of the guys who were in the office, they were the guys who were just like the guys that were bullying and picking on me and beating me up when I was in high school and junior high. They, They look and talk and act exactly like them. And if that's the case, if that's the pre- the way that most of these brokerage firms and these financial advisors are presenting themselves, no wonder queer folks are like, screw that. I don't need to be a part of that. Right? But unfortunately, the screw that, I don't need to be a part of that has been hurting us financially because a lot of us haven't been participating in growing our wealth, growing our income through investing and learning about money ha- ha- good money habits
1: Now of course here we're making a lot of generalizations. there are of course um, individuals who are definitely interested and eager to help LGBTQ people but as a um, industry, it has been somewhat exclusionary. And that's, um, this is to this point, why we published an article in Forbes in 2018 titled Apply Now, Thousands of Transgender Job Opportunities and Financial Services, because there are a lot of older white folks who are going to be retiring in the next couple of years. I forget the exact percentage, but 30-some plus percent are planning on retiring in the next few years. Well, there's not enough people to backfill those jobs. And we need to make financial services more... Rainbow, yes, <laughs> we need to make it more pink. We need to add some more color and life and diversity to the industry, and a lot of people think that you know they, when they think of financial services they think of you know just people trying to buy and sell and take advantage of people trying to sell on wall street. It's not right. that you're actually yeah. you're actually it's it's a it's another form of life coaching you're helping people get educated and make better decisions around their money. And that's sort of a life coaching aspect of it to that career. So if you want to get into financial services and you want to help people, consider that job. It's a great way to make a lot of money and really, really help people in an area of their life that most people are as scared to, to talk about as many of us listening to this podcast.
0: Right. I think we pointed out in that article that within the first couple of years, the average financial advisor is making $90,000 plus. And that was an article that we published back in 2018. So I can't imagine that that hasn't gone up, which having more, Rich as fuck people in our community is exactly what our community needs, right? We need to get over this this feeling that we're not worthy, we don't deserve it, or all rich people are bad because there are a lot of good rich people in the LGBT community, you should be one of them.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Stat number six is that there are just fewer protections for LGBTQ people. In up to 30 states, LGBTQ people can be denied housing and human services based on their LGBTQ status. Only recently did the Supreme Court of the United States protect LGBTQ workers, but we're still watching how that's playing out, right? Even before the Supreme Court made that decision, very few businesses were saying, we're firing you because you're a lesbian, right? They weren't dumb enough to say that. They weren't opening themselves up to a lawsuit, but there are oftentimes ways that they squeeze people out, the ways they don't let you move up the ladder, the ways that they suppress your, your, your wages and um, the ways that they make things difficult for you so that you eventually electively leave on your own. And then you don't even get unemployment. That could still be happening. And there's a very real possibility that it is happening, but that's just something that doesn't necessarily happen to the general population. Um, so there are just fewer protections for us, uh, if for no other example than being, being
0: able to be night housing and human services in those 30-some states. Point number seven is that as a community, we are still spending a lot of our time, our energy, and our money to fight for our rights, right? Just because marriage equality passed in 2015, and just because the ruling uh, in 2020 that protected LGBT workers doesn't mean everything is equal, right? I mean, as a matter of fact, I think it was two or three years after the SCOTUS ruling about marriage equality we were asked by a financial advisor when we were in Ohio, we are asked by a financial advisor, well, can LGBT people get married in this state? <laughs> uh, and I don't know how many times we've been asked that by people since this has happened. And it's like, this is the law of the land. Of the united states so people are still clueless as to what is going on and what the our true rights are which means that there are a lot of there's a lot of misinformation out there and really this ends up doing to us is this undermines our ability as individuals in a community to get dedicate our time to the things that would allow our lives to progress at the same rate as someone who isn't fighting for these rights, right? We, we Individuals who are not donating to the causes that are important to them, such as LGBT centers or uh, fighting for LGBT rights and specific bills and donating to particular politicians, that's the money factor of it. But also think about the time factor of it, right? If you're spending your time out there helping with boots-on-the-ground organizations, that's time that you don't necessarily have to, one, rest from the job that you may not actually be enjoying, so it just continues to stress you out. Two, you're not probably spending as much time educating yourself to move your career forward. You're just sapped for time and energy, right? All of this distracts us from being able to progress financially.
1: So we didn't want to just give you seven data points to argue with grandpa over the Thanksgiving dinner table (laughs) about why things are different and harder for you than maybe it is for him. And we wanted to give you some solutions as well. So here are five quick solutions to help maybe overcome some of these adverse data points that we just shared. Tip number one is to increase your emergency savings. So as we said earlier, that the advice that the general population gets might not necessarily apply the same to us. Well, so the standard recommendation is to have anywhere from three to six months in emergency savings uh, of living expenses in an emergency savings account in case you were to lose your job or any other sort of adverse effect would happen in your life. Well, while it may be harder, David and I even today still recommend that LGBTQ people maybe shoot strive for that nine to 12 month period, because we are more likely to be denied housing. We are more likely to be denied services, especially when we need it. So to the extent that we can have that bigger cushion, that would make things easier. Now, that said, we understand it's almost feels like an impossibility for some people. Um, so maybe it's just something that we start to chip away slowly at over time um, as a, as a long term goal.
0: Number two on these solutions is to eliminate or reduce your debt. We know that debt can, especially credit card debt, can have a choking effect on your feelings about yourself, your self worth and it will do the same to your financial worth, right? Mm -hmm. Your financial, your net worth will continue to shrink if you're not paying your debt off. You don't have the same upward mobility. And you all know this is something that John and I specialize in. Our credit card debt slasher tool that we have available on the Queer Money Podcast website and the Debt Free Guys website, go download that. That's a free tool that you can use to get yourself started on this path to reducing your debt. It's really important to eliminate that debt because it frees you up, it frees your finances up to focus on ways that you can grow, benefit yourself and then benefit the community.
1: Right. Solution number three is to get married and (laughs) access yourselves to or avail yourselves for 1000 protections, uh, legal protections, including survivor and spousal social security benefits. Uh, on an episode several years ago, we talked about 1 million reasons why same sex couples should get married. And you want to check out that episode because it could really provide some financial security for LGBTQ folks into retirement, especially after they, they may lose their partner. Uh, a lot of us maybe have an aversion to the idea of getting married. There are still a lot of older same sex couples who are choosing to not do it, but they're missing out on tons of protection. So if you're in a relationship and you are at the point where, you, you could get married, maybe think about actually doing it because it could maybe add to your financial security.
0: Right. And don't not get married because you can't have the most fabulous wedding. John and I got married to the justice of the peace the first time we got married. (laughs) And we did it specifically because of this reason. We knew that there were protections that we were missing out on. All right. Point number four, invest in SRIs, which are socially responsible investments. investments. (laughs) Now, more often than not, these are exchange traded funds or mutual funds. Remember, we talked about exchange-traded funds and mutual funds back on episode 294. The other thing is, is that if you're not familiar what these socially responsible investments are, is really they're looking to invest in companies that have a value of social good towards the community, right? The communities that they're in. So they care about the environment. They're looking to reduce their emissions. They care about the communities that they're in by helping individuals in those communities, oftentimes by going out into the community and doing a variety of things. They care about the rights of individuals in those companies. A lot of these companies that are in these indexes or in these mutual funds, these are the companies that stood up and said, yes, we do need to pass Marriage equality in this country. Yes, we do need to have worker rights in this country. These are companies that were spending tens hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of dollars employing lawyers to get out there to these politicians to help make sure that these laws get passed. So we want to invest in those kinds of companies. We're going to do another episode later on this year, along with our investing series about socially responsible investing, what it is and how important it is for our community.
1: Solution number five is to be active. So with that, we know that, that many of us might be tired with our boots on the ground activism, but it's still important and necessary for us to do it because we not have not yet achieved equality. So write your congressperson, your governor, your mayor, and continue to push them and encourage them to provide LGBTQ equality protections. Donate your time and the, to the extent that you can, your money to the people and the causes that are pushing for our rights. Um, it's only by this kind of activism that we're actually going to to get some change. So those are our seven data points for what makes LGBTQ money different and our five solutions to help start overcoming those differences. Now stay tuned for your queer money takeaway from this episode. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Queer Money. Here's your Queer Money takeaway from this episode. It's so easy when we hear or see data like this to get caught up in the woe is me victim mentality. Please don't do that. As Maya Angelou said, when you know better, do better. With the knowledge of what makes LGBTQ money different, simply start to think of your money differently. Start taking the best actions that you can take to protect yourself and your financial security using the five solutions we talked about at the end of this episode, or any other great idea that you have of your own.
0: Then join us next week when we talk about what annuities are and how they can be used to secure your income for life. Remember, we make the Queer Money podcast for you. So if you have any money questions, post them to the Queer Money Facebook group and we may answer them in an upcoming episode. As a matter of fact, we got a question about annuities and that's partly why we're doing that episode. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.
1: From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road.